Good morning. It's um, wonderful each week to see more and more faces, and um, it's really nice to start off this service a little differently than we started the other one. You should have been at the first service, so it was very exciting. I'll just leave it at that. But we had some technological challenges that were, uh, were enjoyable to go through for sure. So anyway, so far so good. We're in a series called uh, Good Ways to Share the Good News. And the good news is this, this massive of information that God has now revealed himself completely, comprehensively in Christ. Now it says the scripture in, in Scripture that Christ, we can see the fullness of God in bodily form or in human form. And this is the good news that God wants us to share with the world. Now we know the truth that God is forgiving, that God is loving, that he is compassionate, that he loves us, he wants us, he's for us, he's not against us. He's generous, he wants to give to us immortality, life in this world, life in the next. All these things are compressed into this message, the good news. We started out this series saying, Good ways to share the good news. One of the easiest ways that we have in Scripture teaching us is that we can share this good news simply by inviting people. We have models of that in Scripture. The second way we looked at was last week. We said we can share this good news by simply answering their questions, people's questions. Sometimes God sets up divine appointments. He'll cause people to cross our paths, and they have spiritual questions. And if we are just willing to be that person to answer their question, whatever their question is, often that leads them down a path that can end with them being reconciled with their creator, going from being relationally disconnected with their creator, not knowing who they are, why they're here, what the meaning of life is, how it's meant to be lived, to connecting with Christ, their creator, having the light of the world, knowing who they are, why they're here, how to live, and so forth. All, all that happens when a person returns to their creator in trust so now we come today to this portion of scripture that's that's going to get right to the heart of this matter and it starts us out thinking about where we left off last week I, I mentioned in the message last week that when human beings ask spiritual questions they usually have a cluster of questions deeper inside that they perhaps haven't brought forth to the front of their minds but those questions are there so I want to start with those questions again it's a cluster. God, who are you? When people ask us spiritual questions, in the back of their mind somewhere, it's like, God, who, who are you? What are you like? What kind of a being are you? What are your plans and purposes for everyone and everything? They, they, they're thinking, you know, what is this all about? What are you doing if you're there? And then it gets personal in this cluster of questions that we humans have. What do you think of me? This is the big one. You know, God, if you're there what do you think of me? What, what are your feelings about me? Are you, are you for me? Are you against me? Are you happy with me? Are you angry at me? Are you disappointed with me? Uh, what, what do you think about me? And then it gets even more personal. What do you want from me? What, what is it that I'm supposed to do? What, what do you want out of me? How do you want me to respond to you? And then what do you want for me? Meaning, God, does, does my happiness matter at all to you? I mean, what, what do you want from me? Do you just need somebody to go around bowing down to you and thanking you and praising you all the time? Or, or do you have some awareness of me? Do you, do you want something good for me, something that I might want? All these cluster of questions, they're there. Now, we're going to look at a, a portion of Scripture in just a bit where a person kind of summarizes that cluster of questions and gets right to the point where they decide they want to be reconciled to God. 
And, and I'm not sure, maybe some of you can remember, some of you, maybe you were brought up in the church and you, you had a relationship with Christ since you were just children, but others of you, you can remember the time in your life where you went through kind of some spiritual ups and downs and you finally came to that place where in so many words, you knew you wanted to be reconciled to God and you might have said it in, in words like, what do I have to do to be saved? We're, we're gonna look at a situation like that today. Now before we do, I want to give you a little bit of a chart, a little bit of a measurement, because you see, the, the truth is, in, in this room today, everyone sitting here is going to be represented by these four different journey markers that I'm going to put up here on the screen for you. So when I put these up and I'm going to walk through them, try to identify where you are at uh, in your spiritual journey. And folks, everybody, everybody's in a spiritual journey. No, nobody's excluded. You'll see. Here we go. The journey from fearful distrust some of us in here are like Adam and Eve when they first broke trust with God they were afraid of him and they didn't trust him God comes into the garden they ran away from him not toward him some of us the truth be told we're, we're just a little bit afraid of God because we don't trust him we, we, we kind of think it like look all I know is that I like the way I live I kind of got some things that I do some things I don't do I've got some habits that I enjoy and I'm just afraid if I start thinking about God or hearing about him he, he's just going to jam my life up he's going to expect me to do things that I don't want to do to stop doing things I do want to do he's going to want to make me change and what those thoughts are saying is that I, I don't exactly trust him and I'm a little bit afraid of him I'm just afraid he's going to wreck my life I kind of like it the way it is now so some of us in here Hopefully not many of us, but it's, but it's okay. Some of us are at this stage of fearful distrust. We don't really know whether or not we can trust God, and we're a little bit afraid of him getting close to our life. We don't want him monkeying with our life. Then some of us, we've, we've stepped over a line, and we have what I call fearful trust. We have actually made a decision that our God, our creator, is trustworthy, and we have put our trust in Christ, and we have become his followers. But the truth be told, we don't know much about him, and we're still a little bit afraid of him. We're, we're, we're still not sure what he wants. We're afraid of displeasing him. We're, we're not sure how to respond to him. We're, we're not sure sometimes where we stand with him. We, we might even think, well, I, I, think, I think I'm saved. I think I'm okay with God, but, I, but I'm not always sure that I am. So some of us have an authentic trust in Christ, but we're still a little fearful of God. And then some of us, we've matured. We've grown. We, we've come to understand more about who God is and what he's really like. And we've gone from fearful trust to fearless trust. We know that God is good utterly, that he's totally unselfishly good, that he always knows what's best for us and desperately wants what's best for us, that he really likes us, he loves us, he enjoys us, he's for us, he's never against us. And we've come to that place where we trust him, we trust him when the worst things imaginable happen in life as well as the best things. We know that he is good. He is good all the time. We understand his plans and purposes to a degree. We understand why bad things occur in this world. So we have what I would call fearless trust. And then the highest level of spiritual development is what I call fearless love. Some of us have gone from trusting God. <laughs> I'm sorry. To just being, frankly, head over heels in love with God. And we may not even be sure exactly how it happened, but we just kept getting glimpses of him. We started learning more and more about the way that he thinks and the way that he feels. And all of a sudden, it just hit us. It just grabbed a hold of us. And we find ourselves in a place where, where not only do we don't fear him, 
We, we have some kind of a love for him that we can't even quite explain or control. It motivates us. It governs every part of our life. It's the center part of our life. And, that, and that's another level of spiritual maturity. Now, here's the key thing to remember. Every single one of us in this room are identified. We're, we're at one of these stages. And we might even be in between some of these stages. So pause. Try to identify what stage you're in. Because the God that loves us and knows us has brought us here today to, to at least consider movement. Movement in this, this journey. Okay. Let me take you to the portion of Scripture I want to take you to now. It's a rather long narrative, so I'm going to kind of give you some background. It's in the book of Acts, chapter, chapter 16. The apostle Paul has come into the city of Philippi. He's reached a few people for Christ, but then in the process, as he was going on preaching, there was a girl that was demon-possessed, and because she was demon-possessed, she had the ability to, to some degree, foretell the future. She was owned. She was a slave girl. She was owned by some men that were making money off of her fortune-telling. Well, the apostle Paul casts the demon out of this girl, and she can no longer tell fortunes. The men get mad. They drag Paul and Silas into the city square. They cause an uproar. They are severely beaten, and then they're locked in prison. And so let me pick up reading uh, in Acts chapter 16, and I'm going to start in verse 22. It says, The crowd joined in the attack on Paul and Silas. Then the officials tore the clothes off the two men and ordered them to be beaten with a whip. That word whip there in a lot of translations, it's, it's the word rods. And if you've ever seen somebody uh, caned, like in, in Tokyo, or not Tokyo, but in Hong Kong, they, they still cane people. It's kind of a, a wood-like thing, but it's, it's a little bit flexible. It sounds like that's what they were dealing with anyway. Uh, then the officials tore the clothes off the two men and ordered them to be beaten with a whip or with rods. After they had been badly beaten, they were put in jail, and the jailer was told to guard them carefully. The jailer did as he was told. He put them deep inside the jail and, uh, had, excuse me, and chained their feet to heavy blocks of wood. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God. Pause. These guys had done nothing but tell people about Christ. For that, they were beaten severely. They were locked in prison. They were put in stocks, and, and yet they're not angry at God. They're not questioning God. They're singing praises and praying. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God while the other prisoners listened. Suddenly, strong earthquakes shook the jail to its foundations. The doors opened, and the chains fell from all the prisoners. When the jailer woke up and saw that the doors were open, he thought that the prisoners had escaped, he pulled out his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul shouted, don't, don't harm yourself. No one's escaped. The jailer asked for a torch and went into the jail. He was shaking all over as he knelt down in front of Paul and Silas. And after he had led them out of the jail, he asked them, what must I do to, what does it say? Save. To be saved. There it is. Now, I'm just curious. Uh, probably some of us in here have had someone in our lifetime in our experience put that spiritual question to us maybe not exactly in those words but they came to that place where they came to you they came to me and they said you know what, what do I have to do to get right with God or they might have literally said what must I do to be saved so here was an individual who wanted to know what does God require me how, how, can, how can I be reconciled to him how can I get right with him now the first question we have to ask is save from what 
And we're going we're to address that. We're going to come back to that. But let me tell you what would have happened. Had this man, had this Philippian jailer asked this question in most churches across America, here are some of the answers he could give. And before we put these up, let me just share this. Back in 2019, I did a Bible Institute in which uh, I taught on the God-shaped heart. And in the very first session, I say this because you may want to go and look at it. In the very first session, I dealt with this subject. And I gave 23 different answers that a person is likely to encounter in a church if they ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Now, here's the thing. Uh, Of all those 23 answers, a person could respond to them and still not be saved. Okay? Now, having said that, you're going to hear some things that you may have been told and you did get saved because getting saved it's a it's more about the condition of our hearts than it is about semantics or or exact phraseology in other words if you're a person that has come to that place in life where you are seeking God and you are ready to put your trust in him once again no matter what instruction somebody gave you on how to get saved you're going to get saved but we want to be accurate we want to express what God wants us to express so here's here's six options of things a person might hear in churches across America if they were to ask the question what do I have to do what what does God want of me what what must I do to be saved here we go you might be told in some churches pray the sinner's prayer whatever in the heck that means some of you know but but most don't you might be asked uh, told this ask Jesus to come into your heart that's a popular one it's like okay I don't know how this works here it is come on in Jesus I I've done my part now I've asked you to come into my heart uh you might be told, ask Jesus to come and make you the kind of person he wants you to be. That's convenient. I don't have to do anything. Come on, Jesus, make me the kind of person you want me to be. Um, again, it's asking Jesus to do all these things for us and in us. You might be told, believe that Jesus took the punishment for your sins, uh, the, the, for your sins you, you deserved, for, for your sins deserved, and now accept the payment. That's kind of a business transaction. You might be instructed. You've you got to accept that you can't pay for your sins, so Jesus paid for them, just accept it, that, that he paid your penalty. Then you might be told, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Once again, what, the, what does that even mean? Uh, churchy talk, that churchy people act as though other people understand what it means. But I'm telling you, after you know, following Jesus now for more years than I like to admit, they don't understand it. They even, even the ones that think they understand it, they don't. I have the conversations, and I know that they don't. So let's go back to that portion of Scripture and let's see what Paul the Apostle, a man who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, who was inspired by the Spirit of God on on ways that we can hardly begin to understand. Let's see what came from his mouth. So remember, what's the question? What must I do to, you tell me, be saved? That's pretty clear. Here's what we go back to. They replied, have faith in who notice faith in a who not a what what must I do to be saved have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ now this word faith you've heard me some of you heard me teach before New Testament was written in Greek Koine Greek common Greek and that word faith there it is a Greek word pistis and it could have been easily just as easily and just as accurately translated trust or confidence or reliance so it's saying have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ have trust in the Lord Jesus Christ have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes it's translated believe but believe is very vague in our terminology today I tend to use the word trust because trust is the most appropriate in our culture because it's a relationally bonding term okay so they were saying 
have trust in the Lord Jesus or have faith in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This is also true for everyone who lives in your home. Then Paul and Silas told him and everyone else in his house about the Lord. So they, they have to talk about the Lord. The people can't trust in the Lord. They can't have faith in the Lord unless they know who he is and what he's about. Okay, so they talked to his household. While it was still night, the jailer took them to a place where he could wash their cuts and bruises. Then he and everyone in his home were baptized they were very glad that they had put their faith, trust, confidence, reliance in God. After this, the jailer took Paul and Silas to his home and gave them something to eat. So here, here's the whole story. So when the question came and the apostle Paul was there, what must I do to be saved? He said, you just need to trust Christ. You just need to put your trust in Christ. That's it plus nothing. Now, what I want to spend the rest of the time on is this. I, I want for you and I to make sure that we will preserve the simplicity of this message because I have watched it become so complex, so diluted, so, so confusing to people that a person never really knows where they stand. And, and so we want to spend some time on zeroing in on this just a little bit more. Now, later on in this message, I'm going to take you somewhere where some of you have never been, some of you have been with me before, but I'm going to show you why. Why, why is trust, why is trust the condition for a person to be saved? And saved from what? Well, let's, let's ask yourself. Most people, when you hear the word saved, I want, I want God to save me or I want to be saved, we picture a heavenly courtroom and we picture God as the judge and we picture it future tense so when we hear the word I want to be saved we we picture that I want to be saved in the future when I stand before the judgment of God I want to make sure the gavel drops and the sentence is you're forgiven you're welcome to heaven that tends to be the picture that people have in their minds when they hear the word saved in churches it's future it's a courtroom situation God's the judge but isn't it interesting that when Jesus was on earth, he hardly ever referred to God as a judge. In fact, he never did. In fact, he said in John chapter 5 that he would be the judge of all people. But he said that the one that he wanted people to know was the Father. He kept calling him the Father, the Father, the Father. A relational term. A loving term. Not the judge. Now, God is going to judge. Jesus himself is a judge. Nevertheless, he says, I lost, lost my train of thought. He, let, me, let me go back. He says, um, Try, let, let me jump ahead because the train has left the station it's gone it's gone it's not coming back today <laughs> let me go on to the next verse here again you have it in the complete Jewish Bible it says they, I know where I was going let me go back the train came back <laughs> this is nothing had you been in the first service it was much bumpier I assure you now, the second picture that it's important to have in mind is this. Uh, we've all seen those scenes where somebody stays too long in their house that's too close to the river to begin with, and the flood comes in, and the, the river water is rising, and the next thing you know, the river is up to the top windows in their house, and they end up on the roof of their house. Have we all seen those scenes? And so now, they want to be saved, okay? And the helicopter comes across, you know, and drops down the, the rope in the little basket to tie around. That is the picture you and I really need to have in our minds when we hear saved. Not the courtroom in the future, the danger present tense. Now, now, let me go back. Let, let's look at some scripture. 
Matthew 1.21, when it's first talking about Jesus, it says, they will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their, you finish it for me, sins. Not from the penalty of sin. Sin itself, the thing that I'm in danger of, the flood water rising in my life, your life, the life of everybody in the world, it is sin. It is sin that I need to be saved from, and you're going to see that the key to me, you, anyone being saved from sin is where my trust is. If I distrust God, I am not possibly going to be saved from sin, and that's why trust, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ becomes this pivotal and critical thing. So he wants to save us from our sins present tense it's sin that is causing all the havoc all the pain all the heartbreak all the conflict in the world always has always will so so sin is what we need to be saved from so let me now pick back up here so here's the complete jewish version i like it when it uses the word um, pistis the greek word because it always translates it trust it says they said trust in the lord yeshua that just means jesus and you will be saved it's the exact same verse we just read so notice simple clear concise to the point. Let me share a couple other verses with you. How about this one we're also familiar with? There's usually somebody with a you know, purple wig on or something at football games with John 3.16 as though anybody else knows what John 3.16 is. But here's the complete Jewish version again. It says, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only and unique son so that everyone who what? Trusts where? Does it say trust about him or in him? Is there a big difference? Yes. You you see, we could meet somebody, and if we were to receive sufficient identification about them, you know, we we look at their birth certificate, we look at their driver's license, we could see who they are, how old they are, where they live, we could find out what their occupation is, and so we could believe all those truths about them, okay? But would that mean that we trust them? No, not necessarily at all. Trust is a relational term. This is talking about not just believing facts about Jesus. The facts are meant to be the basis for our trust because we know what he taught, because we know how he lived, because we knew he was compassionate, because we knew his miracle-working power that was capable of actually delivering humanity from all the things that plague us because he sacrificially gave himself on the cross to prove how much he loves us and is for us and never against us because he rose from the grave and raised others from the dead. We know that he has all power to keep his promises such as forgiveness and eternal life. It's these facts about Jesus are meant to bring us to the place of trust in Jesus. But believing in the facts about Jesus can fall short of trust in Jesus. Once you trust in Jesus, you become his follower. That's the acid truth. But the, the Bible was written in, in a context, first century context, where if you came to trust in a teacher, a rabbi, which Jesus was, they called him rabbi, teacher, it meant that you liked you liked the rabbi you liked what the rabbi or the teacher was teaching and you liked the rabbi and what the rabbi was teaching so much that you wanted to become like the rabbi you became a follower of the rabbi of the teacher because you wanted to immerse yourself in his teaching because you trusted in him admired him and wanted to become like him all this is packed into this truth about believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, following Jesus. So let, let me take you to another one real quick. John 10, 27, 28. You'll hear me use this an awful lot because it gives crystal clarity to people. What does it mean to trust in Jesus? Here's Jesus talking 
analogizing himself as a shepherd and human beings as sheep. He says, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they what? Follow me. And this was true in biblical days. Um, the shepherds at nighttime, you know, it might be five or six shepherds, they would all bring their sheep into one pen. And then at the daytime, one shepherd would go out and he'd say, ah, oh, da, 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 he'd call his sheep. And, the, and only his sheep would come out. The rest of the sheep would stay in the pen. Then another shepherd would come out and he'd say, ah, oh, da, 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 and then his sheep would come out. So this is literal. They, they understood. It's saying, though, Jesus is saying, the people that respond to my word are really mine. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. They do what he says. Why? Because we really trust him. And I give them, notice it's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. Let me go on to another. John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to the people once more, and he said, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. So when we say save, save from what? Save from sin. Remember that verse, John, Romans 3.23, most of us know it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What, what does it mean, the glory of God? How, how many people were ever shooting for the glory of God? The glory of God means this. It says in the beginning of Scripture, it says that we were made in the image of God. We were meant to wear his character, his, his morality, his, his beauty of character. And sin causes us to fall short. So Jesus wants to save us from never, got to get a track with me on this, from never becoming who we were capable and meant to become and doing what we were meant to do, having the glory of God. We were meant to wear the image of God sin destroys that it mars that we never become who we were meant to become never do what we we're meant to do jesus wants to save us from that when we return to him in trust we now are on the path that we can be restored or have the image of god restored in us okay so let me let me turn you to uh well before i go before i go there let, let, me, let me give you one more illustration so when we're talking about trust uh we're talking about Again, not assent to truths as, as important as they are, but we're talking about something that's dynamic. How many of you have ever had the experience of going to a doctor? It's your first time. You don't know this doctor. It's your first time going to the doctor. Uh, I mean, haven't we all had that experience? So it's a brand new doctor. The doctor is a stranger. And yet you trust that doctor before you know that doctor. You, you say, Randy, how, how do I know that I trust the doctor? Or maybe I don't really trust the doctor. Much. Well, you trust the doctor a lot. If, if the doctor tells you i want you to go down the hallway to that room and take off all your clothes and i'm going to come in you take that little piece of paper put over you it's like a cape or something and i'm going to come in and examine you you do it it's a total stranger and yet you do it right because to some degree you trust the doctor what do you trust about the doctor you trust in the doctor's character even though you don't know the doctor you trust that the doctor is there to heal you help you do good to you okay it's not a mad doctor it's a good doctor you, you trust that the doctor is competent. If the doctor needs to see you with your clothes off, well, there must be some, some reason for it. And so you, tr follow me now, you trust in the doctor's character and competence. Likewise with Christ. I trust in his character that he's sacrificially good. I trust in his competence. He created the universe. He knows all things. You see, you see how these things go together? So, so this is a dynamic trust that demonstrates itself by action. Let me, let me go further. So the same doctor, the doctor examines you, does some tests on you and says, okay, here's the thing. You need, you, need, you need to take these three pills every day for the rest of your life. If you trust the doctor, what do you do? Take the pills. You take the pills, thank you. Do you know what's in those pills? 
Me either. I don't know. I don't know what's in the pills. You don't know what's in the pills. We, we, we take for granted that the pills are safe because we trust the doctor. Let me go further. So, so the doctor, after examining you, says, you know what? Um, you need a surgical procedure. I, I want to I cut you open. I'm going to reach in. I'm going to take out one of your organs. We're going to throw it in the trash can. But after we throw one of your organs away, man, you are going to feel dandy. You're, you're going to feel so much better. Your whole life, the quality of your life is going to be elevated. If we trust the doctor, what do we do? How many, how many have had surgery in here? Can I see your hands? <laughs> we trust them. And yet, we don't know that much about them, really. Christ wants that kind of trust with us. And he has shown himself confident by creating the universe, and he has shown his character by sacrificially giving himself on the cross to express the depth of his love and his affection and his goodwill toward us. Okay, so... We need to preserve the simplicity of the message. What must I do to be saved? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means become his follower. That's it, plus nothing. Don't add to it. You'll complicate the message. Don't get into your, your theological biases about the meaning of the atonement. Some of you know what that means, some of you don't. If you don't, you don't need to know. Just give the simple, beautiful truth. Preserve the truth. But now what I want to do is take you on a journey. I want you to perceive the necessity. In other words, if it, why trust? Why is trust so critical? What is, what is the reason that God values trust so much? One of the things churches have done to, through the years is that we, we, we do a very good job of giving people slices of God's truth. You know, we, we can zero in on a portion of God's truth and we can really clarify it and put it in its historical context and theological context and all that stuff. But what we do a lousy job of is giving people the big picture. We give good slices, we don't give the big picture. Puzzle people. How many here are puzzle people? You, li- you like to do puzzles. Okay. Suppose, suppose I had a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and so I take it and, and I dump it out before you on the table. You're a puzzle person. You're excited. You, you're wanting to do it. But then I take the cover <laughs> and I hide it from you. I don't let you see the cover. At best, at best, you're going to have a hard time and you might even, you might even be tempted to say bad things at times trying to put that, that puzzle together. And even when you're putting it together, you don't you don't have proper identification of the pieces. And so you start saying, okay, these are all green. Let me put them again. But you don't know if it's a green rug or you don't know if it's a green tree or you don't know what it is because you haven't seen the big picture. Why is trust so important to God? We're not going to know. We're not going to know unless we know the big picture. We're going to think that it's kind of arbitrary. That Some Christians think that God could have picked almost any condition at all for salvation. You know, eat a tuna fish sandwich every Friday and I'll, I'll take you to heaven. You know, no. No, there, there's a reason. Once you see the big picture, for some of you, you've heard me teach this for others of you, that this will potentially transform your relationship with God. You will know that he's a rational, linear being that you can understand why he does what he does and your trust in him will increase and perhaps turn even into love as time goes on. So, perceive the necessity of the message. I'm gonna take you back now. We're gonna go way, 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 way back in time when there's nothing except God. The scripture defines God, says that God is love. So here you have this almighty, eternal, omnipotent, that means all-powerful being, but who is governed and personified by love. And so let's ask a question. What's the best gift that he could possibly give? The best gift possible would be image-bearing beings with the capacity to experience life on the level that God himself does. And I challenge you, if you think you could go back 
and prayerfully come up with something else that God could have done more generous than to make beings in his own image I'd love to hear what that could be let, let me show you what I mean by image bearing beings okay a mosquito has life but but it's limited it's very limited capacity you know you're not going to find a mosquito playing a piano or anything like that or you know reading a book a a dog has life and it's superior to the mosquito the the dog has a lot more capacity for life and interaction with with humans and seems to have affections and so like that but but you know and i know your dog doesn't compare to a human a human has capacity to experience life on a much much higher level god gave the greatest gift possible he decided with full knowledge by the way that some of the beings the image bearing beings he make which means we have authentic free will that he wanted he created us out of love because he wanted to authentically have beings that can love and that might love him back and he did this with full knowledge that many of the beings he would create would never love him and others that he would create would do tremendous hurt to his heart and to all of his creation he knew this and yet he still created because he did it for those that he knew could be brought back to a trusting relationship with himself and who would actually like him for himself how many of you know there's some people that call themselves christians think they're gonna gonna (laughs) go to heaven and have fun in heaven they don't even like god I'm, I'm telling you, I've, I've conversed with these people. They live as far away from God's will as they can. They just want to make sure that when, when they die, the elevator's going to go up and not down. You know, that, that's all they're about. They, they don't, it's impossible to trust God if we don't even like God. Yet he knew, he knew that some people, some beings he would make would never want him and they would do great havoc. And yet he gave this gift. Let me go on. So what is God's big plan? The, the, the big picture, the front cover of the puzzle. God's plan is the development of an eternal family. He's a father member, a family of Christ-like beings united in loving devotion to Christ and one another. Love means you, from your heart, you actually like God. You you admire him. You have affection for him. You trust him. You want to be with him. You like the way he thinks. You like the way he feels. You like his will. You like his plans. You like his purposes. He intended to have a family like this. This is what eternity is going to be about. And so everything he's doing in time now relates to that. This is, I'm going to tell you somewhere, this is why trust is so important to God. All right, let me go on. Now we get to the big problem. What's the biggest problem in the universe? Well, it all started in the Garden of Eden when Satan comes in there. He slanders God to Adam and Eve. You know, God said, don't eat of this one tree. If you eat of the tree, you'll die. And Satan says, no, you won't die. That's ridiculous. You'll, you'll be like God yourself. You know, he's just making stuff up. He's lying to you guys. He's holding you down. He wants to keep you under his thumb. He wants to keep you dumb and scared. You, you eat of the tree, you'll be like God yourself. They eat of the tree, they don't become like God, but they don't die that day and it made Satan look like he was telling the truth and looked like God was telling a lie it says in 2 Peter 3 it says the day of the Lord is as a thousand years a thousand years a day nobody's ever lived a thousand years so technically God was telling the truth they didn't live a day but that started what we call sin sin is simply living contrary to the way God designed life to be the way that God himself lives which is governed by love and right behavior right conduct so in the universe the biggest problem in the universe is distrusting God Adam and Eve stopped trusting God and because they stopped trusting God they disobeyed him and that produces disobedience to his will so when we hear the term what must I do to be saved follow me now 
God wants to save us from sin, but the root of sin is this, is distrust. It was when Adam and Eve stopped trusting God that they broke his law. And because you and I don't trust God, we do our own will instead of his will. And and so to break the power of sin in our life, to rescue us from sin, we're on the roof, and Jesus wants to rescue us from sin. He has to bring us from distrust to trust Trust is not an arbitrary condition. It is a necessary condition. Let me go to the next slide. So how's God going to restore trust? Because, you know, Satan did a good job of destroying trust. Trust can only be restored through God's willingness to patiently, consistently, and gently reveal himself and demonstrate his trustworthiness, as well as, now this is important, humans becoming convinced of sin's inevitable destructiveness. How many of you... (laughs) How many of you in your younger years, we'll just we'll say it like that, in your younger years when you were young and reckless and dumb, um, you did some things that were really fun. You thought they were really fun then, but boy, they came back and had a, had a real snake bite to them. And you, you think to yourself, man, I would never do that now. How, how many know that by experience? Oh, boy, do I ever. So that's what this is saying. God's allowing sin so that we can he says okay you want your own way go ahead have your own way you know do what you want and you'll see where it brings you he's trying to for he's trying to help us have time to develop personal convictions that his will is always for my best it's always for my highest well-being and happiness and so he does this two ways he's revealing his goodness his trustworthiness progressively gently while he's letting me learn things the hard way simultaneously let's go on now ultimately God is going to rule over everyone and everything in the universe the only question is 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 how is he going to rule remember we saw that he wants to have a a loving family of Christ-like beings that love Christ and love one another so so free will they have affection for God and for righteousness but how's he going to get everybody to obey him all the time he could use force he could make any of us in here obey him if he wanted to he could just turn us into robots but that's not satisfactory to us and it's not satisfactory to him he wanted a family of people that had authentic affection for him he could use fear he could say if if you don't do exactly what I tell you to do I'm going to cut your life short or I'm going to give you cancer or I'm going to hit you with a lightning bolt or something like that but we hate people that bully us and push us around so that wouldn't work either so what is his one method the only method the singular zero point the only method that he can use to bring people and angels to obey him all the time because it's necessary but we're happy about it and he's happy about it well here it is it's faith it's trust he demonstrates to us how much he loves us he demonstrates to us how trustworthy he is and then he waits for us to say you know what you win God there's nobody like you there's nobody that loves me the way you love me there's nobody who would go to a cross for me there's nobody that would chase me down the way you chased me down for years there's nobody that would be patient with me the way you've been all these things they're lessons and God tries to wear us down because he frankly just passionately loves us until we actually come to admire him have affection for him and trust him and he rules only over those that want him to rule because we trust him fear excuse me or faith or trust is not an arbitrary condition it is a necessary it's the only possible condition what must do to be saved trust 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why the Lord Jesus Christ? Why the Lord Jesus Christ? Because God has now revealed himself in totality, comprehensively in Christ. To trust in Christ is to trust God as he is fully revealed. And that's why it's the singular condition of salvation. It's God saying, I'm going to show you all the love that I have for you. And if you reject me after that, I really don't have anything else that I can offer you. That's the sad truth. All right, let me show you a few verses and we get ready. The wheels are down on the plane, I promise you. It, it, the wheels are down. We're going to land this thing pretty quickly now. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the good news. That's the message about Christ. Since it's God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on what? Trusting. We trust in Christ initially. We keep on trusting him for the rest of our life. He changes not. No reason for us to. To the Jew especially, equally to the Gentile. Another one. For in it, meaning the gospel, the good news about Christ, is revealed how God makes people righteous in his sight from beginning to end. It's through, what is the word? Trust. Other versions will say faith. Same Greek word, pistis. As the Tanakh, that's just the Old Testament, puts it, but the person who is righteous will live by his trust. So trust is not just an arbitrary condition. It's a necessary and it's an only condition. Now, I'm going to end this message where I started it somewhat. Let me have those journey markers back so every one of us in this room like I started out saying we're on this board some of us in here we're still in a state of fearful distrust we we haven't trusted God as he's revealed himself in Christ yet we're still a bit afraid of God we think that our own will is the best way to live and and maybe some of us are at the place where we're, we're not going to listen to anybody not even God and God will gently withdraw some of us though may even today be ready to step from fearful distrust to fearful trust we don't know much about God but we've suddenly become convinced that he's for me he's not against me that he knows what's best wants what's best he sacrificed himself on a cross to prove to me that his arms are open wide with forgiveness he wants me to have eternal life with himself he wants to help me become who I was meant to become and do what I was meant to do to be fully human and fully alive some of us maybe this very day have gone from fearful distrust to fearful trust we don't know a lot about God but we know you know what he's won my trust and I'm still a little afraid of him I'm, I'm not sure he isn't going to you know change my life in ways that I'm not going to you know enjoy but, but I'm going to trust him and I'm going to I'm going to become a follower of Christ today I made that decision at age 23 by the way some people say well you know when you make that decision put your trust in Christ you ought to write it down man you ought to write down the day and the time because if you ever doubt if you ever doubt that you're saved, you can look back and pull that certificate out that when you can write down when you got saved. Is that a good way to, to know whether you're saved or not? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have children in here? Can you see your hands? Do you have to pull out your child's birth certificate to know you have a child? <laughs> Likewise, you that are married. Do you have to pull that marriage certificate out and say, oh, shoot, I am married. It, it, no. My sheep, said Jesus, John 10, 27, 28, hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. If you're following Jesus, there's the assurance of your salvation, not in memorization of some day or time that you came forward to the altar or whatever you may, may have done, okay? Let me get back. Fearful trust. Some of us are here or came here in fearful distrust, and you might leave here that way. That's okay. God's patient. He'll just keep trying to draw you to himself. But be careful because your heart can get hard to the point that there's nothing in you that he can appeal to. Fearful trust. Some of us put our trust in Christ, but we have a lot to learn. We're still, still a little afraid of God's will. 
And then some of us, maybe today, we went from fearful trust to fearless trust. Something clicked in this, this talk that says, you know, I know I don't have to be afraid of God at all. I know he's good. I know his will is always best. And from this day forward, I don't care what happens in my life, the worst of circumstances, the best of circumstances, everything in between, I will never shake my fist at God and say, why again? I trust him. He's won my confidence. Maybe some of you, you've gr- grown into a mature Christian. And that is, by the way, maturity, first step of maturity. And then some of you, perhaps you already, you came in here with fearless love. That's the highest level of maturity. Or maybe something even today triggered you and you realized that <laughs> the love you have sought all your life, the home you have sought all your life, the family you have sought all your life, it's offered to you by one and one person only. And that's God as he's revealed himself in Christ, your creator. And you recognize this day that love is right available to you right now. And it catches your attention in a way perhaps that it's never caught it before. Maybe this is the day you step from fearless trust to fearless love. And that's a transforming thing. That's the highest motivation. You know that when you love somebody, that's the highest motivation you have. So I I hope that you'll, first of all, identify yourself and maybe change one of those levels in your life before you even leave here today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've made it so simple for us to be saved, to be saved from a, a meaningless life, to be saved from sin's destructive power, to be saved from emptiness and hopelessness we we thank you that just by returning to you our God Lord Jesus in trust you receive us you forgive us you give us eternal life I just pray that wherever we're at on these levels today that your spirit will prompt us guide us motivate and stir us that we will move forward Lord Jesus I ask it all in your name amen